0: Good morning, church. Glad to be with you here this Sunday. When I uh, turned 13 years old, my dad did this little ceremony for me and some other men that were influential in my life. And for part of that, he gave me an 1881 silver dollar and a 1921 silver dollar. And about a year later, I was in my room and I put these silver dollars like in a drawer in my nightstand or my desk, something like that. Never moved them, never touched them. And for whatever reason, I was in that drawer one night and I noticed that one of them was missing. And I was like, well, this is weird because somebody would have had to have taken it because I don't ever move these things. And I had a good friend of mine. I grew up in a neighborhood, there's a lot of guys, kids my age. And so I had a friend of mine. When we got into high school, we started making some questionable decisions. And I thought he might be the one that took it. And so one day I was at his house and I was at his, in his room and I opened up his like nightstand thing and there it was. Now, fortunately, I actually found it. Um, But then he goes into his room and he sees me like sitting on his bed. At this point, I already had it. I had it in my pocket and his face gets all red and he's like, what are you doing? Because at his house, we didn't normally hang out in his room. We hung out in another room and I was like, oh, nothing. I didn't say anything to him uh, because he was pretty strong-willed and I didn't know how how this would go. And so I just took it back, reminded myself, hey, put this somewhere else and uh, let's not have this happen again. He obviously knew I would have taken it or took it back because the next time he looked in there, it was gone. I think he knew what I was doing. Um, And then our senior year of high school, uh, I was going to UNC Wilmington, I was going to room with another friend of mine, but he didn't know if he was going to go to UNCW or go play baseball somewhere else. And so he was taking too long. And so uh, this friend that I grew up with, who I didn't talk to much anymore, was like, hey, we're both going there. If you don't have a roommate, do you want a room together? And I was like, fine, I guess we can do that. And uh, it did not go well. Uh, he started chewing, which is fine, like not gum, but like actual chew. And then he would leave his spit bottles all over the room. Uh, one day I go in, I notice I had this like envelope cash system when I went to college, and so I had a lot of coins, and so I had this like coin jar, and one day I opened my desk drawer in our room and noticed that the only coins in there were pennies. All the silver ones were gone, and so I asked him about it, and he was like, oh, sorry, I've just buying, been buying a lot of snacks. I've been really hungry, and I'm like, snacks, okay, uh, sure. And so I was like, he's clearly trying to get some money. Didn't think much of it, though. And then I had an envelope with some cash in it, also in one of my other desk drawers. And one day I noticed that there was less money in there. Now, I didn't have it exactly written out how much. So I didn't know for sure, but I was like, I'm pretty sure he has taken some. And I'm like, this isn't good. This is going to be awkward. And so I confronted him about it. And he said, no, I didn't take any of your money. I can understand why you're concerned. Like I I would have asked me the same thing. And I was like, wow, like I'm almost positive he took some of my money, but he said he's not. And I don't, I can't like prove it. And then towards the end of the semester, uh, he left before I did. We were not in the same math class, but had the same like math 111 or something like that. So we had the same math textbook. And when you're in college, you know, every, every penny counts uh, or all, all the money counts. And so at the end of the semester, you can sell your books back. And this one was like selling back for like $60 because it was really big. And so I go to sell my books back on the last day that I'm going to be on campus and it's gone. And so I texted him and I said, you sold my book. And he's like, oh, I didn't mean to. I must have got confused. And I'm like, confused? You had your own math book, and then you had my math. You had two math books. You sold two. It was not a question for you here. And I was really upset, and I decided to change uh, roommates and all these sort of things. But, But there were multiple times where this friend kind of betrayed me, right? He kind of did things you shouldn't do to some of your best friends, friends that you've grown up with, you've known your whole life. And today, speaking of betrayal, we're going to read a passage where Jesus is also going to do something quite significant, and it it, it makes us ask this same question with Jesus. And so the, the question we're looking at this morning is, how does Jesus respond when we betray him? What does he do? What does he think? What does God, how does God operate? How does he respond when we betray him? And so today, I'm really excited. We are looking at the last supper. We've been going through the gospel of Mark, and so we'll be in Mark chapter 14 this morning. And you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you, and you can open up to page 902. I'm going to try to go a little bit shorter here this morning and just kind of talk through this text, what's going on. I'll give us kind of one main point at the end, and then we're going to take communion a little bit differently here this morning. We are in, if you're newer with us, the last week of Jesus' life. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and today we are finding ourselves at what is known as the Last Supper. This is Thursday. Jesus, very late this evening, after the Last Supper, is going to be betrayed and handed over, and then he's going to be crucified on Friday. And there's some fascinating things that happens in the Last Supper that I think we can easily miss, uh, and it shows us what exactly God does When we betray him. And so here's what it says Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. It says this On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, they asked Jesus, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover meal so that you may eat it? So again, Passover would begin at, on Thursday at sundown. It's a week-long celebration where the Israelites would celebrate God passing over judgment from them in, in Egypt and rescuing them out of slavery. And so they did this year-long uh, celebration of Passover every year. And in Jerusalem, where Jesus is, Jerusalem would double, if not triple in size. And so you have all of these people here. And if you're celebrating Passover in Jerusalem, it is a really big deal. And again, Passover it is when God rescued the Israelites on the last day, the 10th plague, when the Egyptians and Pharaoh would not let God's people go. They slaughtered a lamb, a unblemished lamb, and they painted the blood on the doorpost, and God's spirit passed over the Israelites and spared their firstborn son and killed the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians. Now there's a lot more going on there that we don't have time to get into this morning, but this is what Passover is: that God passed over judgment and rescued his people. And so at the Passover meal, again it was a week-long thing, but typically the first night and the last night were like the big celebrations. There was a lot of elements that went into the Passover meal. Uh, the bread was unleavened, you would roast a lamb and not boil it or cook it because I, I, Israelites were given instructions on the night that God rescued them that they'd have to do these things quickly. And so they would kind of recreate this meal in a way. There was spices, there was wine, there was un, there's other food elements. And then of course, you would also eat an unblemished lamb. So a lamb that had no defects and had no problems. So this is what they're going to celebrate. And the disciples want to ask Jesus, "Where are we going to go and do this?" And so Jesus tells them where to go to prepare to eat this meal. And here's what he says, verse 13. It says, "So he, which is Jesus, sent two of his disciples and told them, "Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him wherever he enters." Tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So verse 16, so the disciples went out, entered the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Now, this story, if you were with us a few weeks ago, is very reminiscent of Mark chapter 12, so this would have been the, the, about a week ago, when the disciples and Jesus first enter into Jerusalem. He tells his two of his disciples to go find a colt or a donkey for him to ride on into Jerusalem in, and so... Jesus tells them, here's how you'll know who the donkey is, and it will happen just as I say. And again, Mark is trying to show us that everything that's going to happen in the last week of Jesus' life, Jesus knew it was going to happen, and of course, here is the same way. Now, we don't know how Jesus arranged this meeting or how this went to take place, but Mark is telling us that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, and he sent out two of his disciples to start to make preparations for Passover. Now, as a side note, it is significant that there's a man carrying water because in these ancient cultures, you were either uh, only women carried water jugs or slaves. So to have a non-slave man carrying a jug of water would be a little bit unique to see. However, Jerusalem is also packed with people. So it's still like, not like, you know, you, there's still a lot of people you got to find, look through. But for however however, ways, uh, they find this man and it happens just as Jesus said. And then they go and prepare the Passover. And then it says this, Verse 17. When evening came, he arrived with the 12. So all of Jesus' disciples are coming to celebrate the Passover together. Now, really quickly, there are again, a lot of elements that took over took the Passover meal. The Passover meal would take a couple of hours. Uh, Mark is going to give us just the highlight, the pinnacle of the meal, uh, because again, he typically moves pretty quickly. But even all of the, the gospel accounts of this Last Supper focus primarily on the elements that we're familiar with. Even though there would have been a lot more things going on, Mark is trying to focus on what actually was most important about this meal. And here's what it is. Mark 14, verse 18, it says this. It says, while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the 12, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. Now, it's worth pointing out that up until this point, the meal surely would have been somber and not very celebratory. Again, all week, Jesus is talking about suffering and death. He's already had some scuffles in the temple that we've read about. And so they're like, not sure what's going on. They're probably nervous this whole time. And then Jesus talks about, to the shock of everyone, that not only is he going to suffer and die, but it's going to be one of them that actually makes this betrayal possible for Jesus to be handed over to the authorities. Now, again, what's easy for us to forget to do when we read these stories is just imagine what this would have been like for the disciples, right? Because what often happens is we read the stories of Jesus and sometimes we see them teaching and some, him t- disciples and the disciples asking them questions. But, but we forget that these are real people with real stories that have been with Jesus for a few years. And they've seen him not only do amazing things for other people and perform miracles and do incredible things, but there is absolutely no doubt that they have all individually been impacted by this man. That there is probably no doubt that no one has ever loved any of them or cared for any of them the way this man has cared for each of them. And so as you're having this Passover meal together, which was a really big deal, especially to have it with your rabbi in Jerusalem who has done all of these things for you, you can't help but be shocked and wonder who would do this. And surely I would not do this after everything you have done for me. It's probably unfathomable for the rest of the 11 who did betray Jesus that somebody would actually do this, especially after partaking in such an intimate meal together. Again, this man who has changed your life is going to be betrayed by one of the people in the midst. It would probably be really hard for you to understand how that's possible. So of course, like us, uh, we would probably do the same thing. No, there's no way that I would do it. It wouldn't be me. Again, they've given up everything to follow Jesus, and one of them is now going to turn on him. And so then he says this in verse 21, knowing that, it says, for the Son of Man, so he's talking about himself here, will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. So what Jesus is doing when he talks about it has been written about him, he's fulfilling the role of the suffering servant. So in the Old Testament book of Isaiah from chapter 40 to 55, Isaiah talks about this suffering servant. And from now through the rest of the gospel of Mark, Mark is going to use a lot of references, sometimes using identical words from Isaiah to be telling us that Jesus is the suffering servant, that he is going to lay down his life as it was written for his people. Yet at the same time, the one who is responsible for betraying him is also fully responsible for their own actions And their own consequences. And then he says this. It would have been better for them not to have been born than for you to do what you're about to do. Now, if we're asking the question, how does Jesus respond to to us when we betray him? And if the story ended right here, then how many of us think how God responds to us would be accurate. Right? When we do something bad, he gets us. When we screw up, he punishes us. And that's what's going to happen here. Clearly, it's what I thought. Like, God, if we do bad things, he tells us bad things are going to happen. Now, and then what happens to us in our life is that when bad things happen, we think we must have done something wrong, or if bad things are happening to us and we feel like we haven't done anything wrong, then we get really mad at God because we feel like it's not fair because God is supposed to treat us. You know, if we do the right thing, he's supposed to bless us. If we do the wrong thing, he's supposed to, you know, harm us. That would seem to be accurate if the story ended here, but that's not how it ends. And then Jesus does, knowing the context, knowing that he is going to be betrayed, what he's about to do here is actually quite astounding. Instead of kicking them out, instead of leaving, instead of being really angry, he then does this. Verse 22 of Mark 14 says this. It says, as they were eating, so then they go and have this meal anyway. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it. Gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. Now again, remember, this is the Passover meal where they're celebrating the fact that God spared the firstborn and rescued his people. And so what we see happening here at the Last Supper is Jesus is essentially uh, updating or if you would changing the meaning of the Passover meal. If you're an observant Jew and you're just kind of reading Mark or any of the Gospels and you get to this point, you would be really uncomfortable, if not offended, that Jesus is saying that this meal represents something that it hasn't ever represented. And who is he to say that this is what it really represents? That who is he to say that he is, no, he is the firstborn because he's not? Now, what's fascinating is that all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is also described as the firstborn as well. So, for example, in Colossians, it'll be on the screen. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, when Paul is talking about Jesus and all these things and who he is, he kind of begins his kind of a few verses of explain, explaining the amazingness of Jesus by saying this in verse 15. It says, he, talking about Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In other words, Jesus is God in the flesh, the firstborn, blessed by God the Father, who is inviting us into his inheritance. So when the scripture writers talk about Jesus being the firstborn, they're not talking about him being created. In fact, later in Colossians, Paul says it's not that he was created. In fact, he was there when God created everything. The firstborn language is really just the imagery that in the ancient world, if you were the firstborn, you had certain rights, privileges, and extra inheritance that no one else in the family had. And so that when we follow Jesus, Jesus bestows on us the inheritance that is has come Coming to him. And so here's what this means for the Passover that when Jesus here is with his disciples and he's leading them in this remembrance meal, uh, what would often happen when you would stand up and begin the meal, particularly when you would start talking about what the bread represented? Traditionally, the person who was leading the meal would say something along the, these lines. They would take the bread and then they would say, This is the bread of our affliction, which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who are needy come and celebrate the Passover with us. That's just how, something along those lines, is how the Passovers would typically begin. But that's not what Jesus says. What does he say? This is my body. In fact, in Luke, it'll be on the screen, Luke chapter 22 gives us a little bit more context of what Jesus said. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19, it says this, And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you do this in remembrance of me now in aramaic which was Jesus' native tongue which he would likely would have been speaking to them with casually in aramaic literally this is what it would have said this my body so he would have picked up the bread and would have said this my body now in the, again in the ancient world when you would talk about your body you weren't just referencing your physical just your flesh and your bones it was really meant to be your entire being In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that this is my entire being, my entire body is going to be given to you. Now, this sounds really encouraging, but remember, this happens right after stating that he knows he is going to be betrayed. And what he does is he still goes through with it, and he still allows Judas, his betrayer, to partake in this, that my body is still going to be given to you. He still does it. And so what he's essentially saying again is that this bread is now not to be seen simply as the bread of the affliction from the Israelites in Egypt for your ancestors, but this bread is my affliction for you, that I'm going to take the punishment and the death that you deserved on my body. It's going to be laid out for you. And then he says this in verse 23, it says, then he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drink it he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many now what's happening here is that jesus then takes the cup of wine and he passes it around they all would have drank it from the same cup and he and he says this is my body that's given to you so again taking a communion or passover meal uh, with your rabbi in jerusalem is also kind of like saying like we we we're, we're, we're we are trusting you we are following you and so to break that especially right after the communion or last passover meal is a really big deal and he said this is my blood poured out for you now for us again it's kind of weird it's like you just said body now you're saying blood it's like the same thing and also it's like that's a kind of a weird concept for us but again in judaism the blood of a sacrifice was a really big deal. In fact, you had various rituals and practices that the, that the would do after they sacrificed with the animal, they would sprinkle the blood on certain things and they would do certain things. And it was kind of a symbolic way of saying that this animal who did nothing wrong is now sacrificed and atoned for your sin. They have poured out their blood, their life being, they've given themselves for your redemption, for your forgiveness. And so when Jesus is talking about his blood, he's not simply saying again, like, just so you know, like, I'm giving my whole body for you. What he's also saying is that just like the blood of the animal, an innocent animal was the atonement for the sins of the people, my blood is going to be your atonement as well. It is going to be your redemption as well. And so the Last Supper or communion or the Eucharist, if you grew up in church, whatever your church tradition might have called it, what he's essentially saying here is that my whole being is being given to you, my whole being is being laid down for you, and I'm going to redeem and atone for you. I'm going to stand in your place. This is why in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time as he begins his earthly ministry, John the Baptist says, behold... The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that I'm coming to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Or put another way, that his blood becomes the sign, that Jesus' blood becomes the covenant of our deliverance. deliverance. What he's essentially saying is that he is the ultimate fulfillment of what God began in Exodus 12, where you can read about the original Passover, that he is actually the true Passover, and the Bible is a unified story that leads to him that it's all pointing to him. That What the sacrifices, what the animals could not do because they would have to do them day after day, year after year, he is going to be the final and atoning sacrifice for everyone, even for those that will betray him. And then he says this in verse 25. says, truly I tell you, I will no longer drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom. So when Jesus comes back and recreates the heavens and the earth. Then verse 26, after singing a hymn, they went out from the Mount of Olives. So again, what's happening here is he's continuing, Mark here is continuing, or Jesus rather, is continuing his reference to his return. We talked about this in Mark 13 a couple years ago, that he's, again, not going to partake about, uh, with this Passover meal again until he's with all of his people in the kingdom of God. And then they sing uh, hymns, likely a couple of psalms from the book of Psalms. And then they go to the place where Jesus is ultimately going to be betrayed. They go to the garden. Of course, if you know what happens next, we'll read about this next week. The disciples continue to fall asleep on him, even though he's literally said, like, this is it for me. They continue to fall asleep and fall away. Yet he still does this. And so again, what you have at this last meal is that you have Jesus giving fully of himself, knowing his betrayer is in his midst and that all of the disciples, now Mark doesn't say this because his his account is condensed, but you can read about this in the other gospels, that all of the disciples, despite their protests, may not betray Jesus, but they will all abandon him. And he knows they're all going to abandon him. And he does it anyway. In fact, he tells Peter that you're going to deny me three times And then Peter's like, no, I would never deny you. I will actually give my life for you. And then, of course, we'll read this in a couple of weeks. He actually ends up denying Jesus three times, not only denying that he knows Jesus, he ends up actually cursing the name of Jesus, doing what a faithful Jew should never do. And he, betrayed, he abandoned him. In fact, John the, is the only disciple who was actually there when Jesus was put up on the cross, which all took courage because they're afraid for their own lives. They all abandoned him. In fact, even on Sunday, which Jesus was betrayed and crucified on a Friday, the Saturday is the Sabbath. And then on Sunday, it says that they were all the disciples were hiding in a room together, afraid from the Jewish authorities because they thought, now that they've taken care of Jesus, they're now going to take care of his most closest followers. They're all in fear. They all run from Jesus. Jesus knows and tells them this is going to happen. And he does this anyway. He still gives his life for them and for you. Now, when you read this, when you think about it, you think like this does not make sense. In fact, one of my experiences in my own life and talking to many people is that one of the biggest hindrances for you and for me of a, to, that keeps us from accepting the grace of God in our lives is feeling like we don't deserve it. Like, like the disciples, like we've done our own things, or maybe we haven't done terrible things, but I've gone a long time in my life going my own way, and I should have known better, and, and God shouldn't deserve, you know, I don't deserve it. And I just want to let you know the good news of the gospel of what Christ th- has done for you and for me means this, that you're right, you don't deserve it, but Jesus offers it anyway, right? He is the atoning sacrifice, which means he does what you could not do yourself, What none of us could actually do. He came, lived the perfect life. He was the unblemished lamb, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. You know, what's interesting about this Passover meal is that none of the Passover accounts in all the gospels, they talk about the bread, they talk about the wine, they talk about the elements. You know what they don't talk about? The lamb. Now there's a debate, there, there, there may not have, or there, perhaps there was actually the lamb also present in their, uh, in their last Passover meal, but none of the gospel offers mention it. Now why would they not mention the most, the pinnacle, the biggest part of the Passover meal? Well, what they're trying to show us is that the lamb is Jesus that you don't need a Passover lamb because he is the Passover lamb. He is the unblemished one. He is the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so if you're here this morning and you feel like you don't deserve it, that you have gone your own way, that you have abandoned the Lord, that you have betrayed him at times in your life, and you feel like you don't deserve it, you are right. But he offers it to you anyway. If you're here this morning and maybe you've been divorced and you think I've done this terrible thing, you need to know that God still offers his grace to you. He still offers it. If you've cheated on your spouse or cheated on someone, you need to know that Jesus still offers it. If you have an addiction that you can't seem to shake, you need to know that Jesus still offers it. If you have an addiction that you've been lying about, trying to cover up because you're embarrassed that people might find out, you need to know that Jesus still offers his grace you. If you're here this morning and you're wrestling with doubts and questions about your faith and you think that God's, you need to know that he still offers it. If you have never experienced the grace and mercy in your life, thinking it's always up to you, you need to know right here today in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your screw up, he still offers it for you and for me. He is the fulfillment on our behalf. And so again, when we ask this question this morning, how does Jesus respond when we Betray him. How does he respond? Well, here's what Mark tells us. Mark shows us this that nothing can stop Jesus from offering his grace to you. Nothing. Nothing can stop it. Now, hear me. I, as a pastor, feel the exact same tensions as you do. In fact, sometimes I think to myself, I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to know better. I shouldn't sin. I shouldn't say this thing. I shouldn't treat people like this. I shouldn't do this thing. And then I feel like, well, if anyone's supposed to know, I'm supposed to know, and yet I still do it. I know what it's like to feel like not, I do not deserve this. It's hard for me to believe as well sometimes that he still offers it for me and for you. And so no matter who you are, your season of life, what you've been through, we all have these stories we tell ourselves that God's grace might be sufficient for those people But it's not for me. And I just want to tell you that if Jesus can offer his grace and his forgiveness to people who abandoned and betrayed him, he can and he does offer it for you. This is why one of the well-known passages in the, in the book of, of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes this. Now again, Paul killed Christians essentially professionally. He was a religious leader before he had his own conversion. So if there's anyone who feels like they don't deserve the mercy of God, it's certainly Paul. But then after talking about all of God's grace through Jesus, he says this in verse 38 and 39. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look right at me. Look right at me. Nothing can stop Jesus from offering his grace to you. Nothing. Now, here's what's really cool. I mentioned uh, when I began that I had a friend that betrayed me, you know, a couple times. You probably would have thought, well, I should to learn my lesson maybe the first or second time, but that's okay. It betrayed me. It's a really cool and sad story. It was about a, couple of years, about a year or two after the fact, uh, he actually ended up checking himself into a rehab center, and he wrote me a letter apologizing for the things that he did, and he wrote me a check for $100 and all these sort of things. And a couple days later, his dad called me. And his dad just wanted to call me and give an update on how he's doing and also apologize for all these things. And I just told him what I wrote back to my friend. I said, listen, I don't want his money. In fact, I tore the check up. Like I just, I'm glad to see that, that he's taking steps and I'm glad to see that his life is turning around. I'm glad to see that he's starting to see Jesus for who he is, that even him who really hurt his dad, his own family and me and other people, even he's beginning to see that God can forgive him as well. And then about four years ago, uh, tragically, his stepbrother, who was in high school at the time, uh, took his own life. And if you know my story, you know my dad died by suicide when I was 19 years old. And so God allowed me to minister and to help him and his family in a way that most people couldn't do because the grief of a suicide is very unique. And so you kind of know what it's like, kind of experience it. And God used that story, used our relationship to bring hope and healing in a really difficult time. And I just want to tell you this morning again, as we reflect on this idea that nothing can stop Jesus from offering his grace, that there is no debt too big, and that there is no sin too great, that his blood, his perfect blood does not atone for. There's nothing. And so if you're here this morning and you've never taken a step of repentance and faith, I love explaining repentance this way. It's simply being honest. If you never just said, God, I'm honest, I'm broken. I need your help. I need your grace. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done. And I also know that there's many of us in this room this morning who are followers of Jesus and we can forget and we can uh, forget that he loves us, that he cares for us. Or we can think, yeah, I know he loves me, but like, did you know what I did this week? And we, like His blood covers all of it, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. And the last supper communion, the Eucharist is a celebration and is a reminder to us, a tangible, physical reminder that we don't follow a God who simply says really nice things but we follow a God who stepped into time and physically did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He makes it possible that no matter what you and I do, nothing is beyond experiencing His love and His grace.